Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of Past Matters, the podcast that asks museums, galleries and historic houses what their most underrated items are and why visitors should pay them more attention. This episode, like the rest of Season 2, comes to you from lockdown due to the 2020 coronavirus outbreak, so all the interviews have been done over the phone to respect social distancing measures. This does mean that audio quality may not be quite as crisp as you'd have gotten used to listening to season one, but please don't let that detract you from the amazing stories my interviewees have to tell. Now, in this episode, I interview Dr. Ollie Douglas from the Museum of English Rural Life, and we talk about a very iconic piece of clothing, the smock. Now, I must admit, I wasn't expecting Ollie to pick a smock, or in this case, two smocks as his underrated items. I would have guessed that the Museum of English Rural Life, they would have picked something like tractor parts, but actually these smocks have associations with rural life and some very interesting tales to tell. Hello listeners, thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of Past Matters. I'm thrilled to be chatting over the phone, being socially distant, with Dr Ollie Douglas, who is a curator at the Mull, or the Museum of English Rural Life. Ollie, hi. Great, great to have you. Hi. So tell me, and tell listeners, a bit more about your museum. So the, the Museum of English Rural Life is part of the University of Reading. Uh, so the collection was sort of gathered together as a research collection. Really what we cover is the history of the countryside, the English countryside from the Industrial Revolution forward. So sort of mid-18th mid, mid century to the, to the present day. And we're trying to bring that story right up to the present and do so through a collection of somewhere near 30,000 objects. We've got archives uh, that are extremely extensive including vast swathes of photographic material, and we have a very large library as well. So there's, there's a huge amount of material to draw on. And as you can imagine, uh, lots of objects that people have seen for many years since the museum opened in 1951. Uh, you know, so local audiences and audiences from further afield have been coming for many years and, and have their favourites. And, and uh, of course, we all have individual objects that we think tell interesting and powerful stories. It feels quite like, um, I mean, obviously England has the sort of image of the rural idyll and rolling hills and farms, but obviously nowadays we're probably not as much a farming nation, so it must be quite interesting to be part of an institution that documents that that history and that change. Yeah, and in some ways that's, that's something that underpins why the museum was established in the first place, because uh, in... In the, 19, in the early 1950s, this is sort of post-war reconstruction Britain. This is coming out of the Second World War, a, a period when there were big plough-up campaigns and big mechanisation campaigns trying to persuade farmers to buy bigger technologies, tractors and, and tractor ploughs in order to cultivate land. Um, it's also a period during which the, the, the labour force becomes considerably reduced. So all of those sort of people whose working lives have been spent in rural areas, in agricultural uh, context and in rural trades and industries, increasingly they're moving into towns and, and cities to look for work. So the museum emerges from that period and is trying to chart and capture, in some ways, in a sort of salvage ethnography, a way of life that, that is seen to be falling by the wayside or, or at risk in some way. But of course, the countryside carries on and farming carries on. And uh, although, as you say, we're not necessarily thought of as a, as a major agricultural nation in quite the same way we would have been thought of uh, in the early 20th century or in, or in the 19th century. 
the same amount uh, of land is given over to farming and it's cultivated and farmed in, in, in actually very similar ways in many respects. And so the, the objects and collections that we house can be used to tell stories of continuation uh, as well as stories of discontinuation, stories of, 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 of tradition as well as stories of change. Um, but also within that, I think the, 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 that, that idea of, of a romantic vision of the countryside is something that the museum has itself played a part in. Um, and and that's something that in some ways we're trying to redress in our, our current displays and the way we look at and, and explore the collections that we house. I, I must admit, I came across you as a museum via Twitter because I think you have a very famous Twitter account with um, <laughs> with the amazing yes. pictures of uh, absolute unit sheep. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. When people come to your museum, what what are the sort of things they uh, they gravitate towards? Is it is it those sort of photos, or is it is it other things? I think I, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think in in recent months and years, numerous visitors have have rocked up at our doors, uh, hoping to catch a glimpse of the famous absolute unit that uh, that ram, that photograph of a nineteen sixties ram that that's. Uh, part of our very extensive photo archive, and it is in fact on display, tucked in a tucked in a drawer, hidden away. You have to get deep into the collections of the museum to find it, um, to find one of those original uh, versions of that image. But on top of that, they have a tendency to come for often for the larger objects, for the wagons. We have a very extensive national collection of farm wagons many of which are lined up in a in a gallery called the wagon walk so you can walk down and compare wagons from different parts of england That's amazing. Uh, <laughs> and they're they're stunning objects they're enormous imposing pieces of of uh technology from the past but also our galleries culminate in a in a a large open space that features just a handful of of medium to larger sized objects, one of which is an enormous wall hanging, one of a series of dyed wall hangings that were on display at the Festival of Britain in 1951. So the year the museum was founded, um, the Festival of Britain, of course, being a a massive post-war reconstruction Britain uh, celebration of British British industry. um, And in that context, of course, farming, agriculture, the countryside played its part. And these wall hangings were a celebration exactly of that, that, that sort of meeting point of past and present, that meeting point of, of tradition and modernity. It's a sort of one-off thing. These, these wall hangings were on display in 1951. The museum, when it acquired them shortly after those, uh, those exhibitions were taken down, took it to a royal show in Newton Abbott in 1952, a royal agricultural show. So it was on display there. And then they weren't on public display uh, until this one was placed on public display in 2016. So these are sort of rare and unique items. And, and I think people may not know of them until they come to the museum. But once they've seen that wall hanging in the mm. end gallery, it's it's something that they go away and talk about and think about. Yeah. But bigger objects are always, you know, they always, they must just naturally draw the eye of, of any visitor to any museum. Yeah. But um, what, what are the ones you want to talk about today? Well, I think alongside those bigger objects, the museum is also home to uh, vast ways of, of handcrafted, handmade things. Uh, baskets have always proven popular. Lots of the crafts and trades that the museum's collections represent 
are incredibly popular today amongst heritage craftspeople who use them as a, a rich resource to draw on. Um, but the thing I want to talk about today is actually something that in some senses people do come to us for and we are known for, but it's, it's not something that people necessarily delve into the individual stories of. Um, it's a smock, or in actual fact, it's one of several smocks and we don't really know which smock it is. Um, <laughs> I can get into that in a, in a, in, in a, in a bit. But, Sounds uh, very mysterious. <laughs> yes, smocks, as as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure many of your listeners will also know, are a type of workwear worn by labourers, in particular agricultural labourers, uh, very popular from the, the late 18th century onwards, sort of 18th through to the 19th century. Um, we probably don't hold any that are 18th century in date, um, because of course when uh, workwear wears out, when it gets a bit Mm. Uh, threadbare and worn out you don't tend to look after it and save it in the cupboard you tend to chuck it out unless it has a personal connection and it's that idea of the personal connections uh, to smocks a form of workwear that i think are really of interest to me today okay and, and so who do we think these these smocks potentially belong to so the the two smocks that i'm looking at and and and, and talking to you about are smocks that came to us in 1951, part of one of the two major founding collections of the museum, a collection of materials that was gathered by a rural writer of the interwar period, a man called H.J. Massingham. Uh, and H.J. Massingham was uh, known for his books about particularly the Cotswolds, about shepherding, about rural and country life. He himself was a, was a journalist, so he wrote about things in, a, in an emotive and powerful way. And as part of uh, the preparation for a book that he published in 1939, uh, a book called Country Relics, um, he began to amass a collection of objects. So he, in essence, collected his own personal museum. And these two smocks are smocks that come from that collection, which he later gave to the University of Reading when it decided to establish the Museum of English Rural Life in 1951. So this is some years after they were collected, they came into the collections. And these two smocks come with a slightly confusing collections history, shall we say. Both of them claim possibly to have been a smock that belonged to a man called Shepherd Wiggins from uh, from Gloucestershire. He sounds um, like both... an Enid Blyton character. <laughs> yeah, it's a ma magnificently sort of uh, yeah. emotive name, isn't it? Shepherd Wiggins. Um, and uh, Shepherd Wiggins, we know from other documentation and from what little uh, Massinger wrote about him, um, and from a little bit of correspondence, we know that Shepherd Wiggins was survived by uh, his two daughters and, and possibly one of these smocks made it into, into Massingham's collections uh, from Shepherd Wiggins. And we know a little bit about his interest in his smock and uh, some, some, some other things about Wiggins himself. Um, but what we don't know is necessarily whether either of these smocks is actually Shepherd Wiggins smock. And I think what's, what's interesting also is that there's another story associated with one of those two smocks, um, which is that it belonged to a ferreter on a particular estate, a Lord Hambledon's estate. I'm struggling to track down who Lord Hambledon actually was. There's a Viscount Hambledon 
um, who was in fact the, one of the, the, the founders of WH Smiths, whose archives, incidentally, the University of Reading happens to to hold. Uh, and actually, one of the university's properties is is a, a home uh, that used to belong to the Smith family, the Greenlands property. It's where Henley Business School is. So there are interesting connections with the university, potentially with one of these smocks. But it's really trying to track down which one belonged to Shepherd Wiggins with his magnificent name that's the, the, the heart of this matter. <laughs> OK, so when they came to you, were, I mean, were they both said to belong to him or did they have nothing of the history attached to it other than might have belonged to Shepherd Wiggins? There's a little bit of documentation with both of them um, mm. and that documentation is sort of prepared and gathered together at the moment that the objects come into the, the museum mm. and and one of them purports to be the, the ferreter's smock so that's an object it has the object number 51246 um, and the other one Shepherd Wiggins smock. But actually, if you look back at the description that that uh, is given in Country Relics of Shepherd Wiggins smock, it's actually slightly different. So he describes it as uh, my shepherd's smock. It is made of drabbit with wide collar, half inch tucks and gussets, full from the waist down and reaching to the knees. It has none of the elaborate smocking and both sides, which make many shepherd smocks look as though they must have been clothed they must have clothed the warbling Arcadians at the shepherd's calendar. So he's talking about, he's certainly talking about a smock that's, that's, that's a type that's known as a reversible smock. So both sides is what he's talking about there. And that's where effectively uh, you make a smock usually from a single piece of cloth um, and you fold it in half and, and you give it a you give it a colour that can be worn facing both directions. So if you think about a, a, a T-shirt, a modern T-shirt or another piece of modern clothing, they tend to have a colour that faces only in one direction. Mm. So you, you wear it and it's very uncomfortable if you then turn it around. Many smocks were reversible, so they're looking both ways. And actually both those smocks uh, that could be Shepherd Wiggins smocks are reversible smocks. He also talks about it... Um, not having uh, not having any of the elaborate smocking. Now, both of those smocks, both uh, 51246 and 51258, which is the other one, both of them have a bit of smocking. So smocking is that, that technique where the, the, the fabric is bunched together uh, and stitched in a way that creates mm. patterns. So quite, and you often get like pleating, yeah. does it? Yeah. yeah, it's a bit like pleating. And then on top of that, you also you also get decorative stitching around the edges. And one and certainly one of those smocks has 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 decorative stitching, and it has sort of heart shaped symbols and 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 floral patterns uh, to either side of those those chest panels. So the the pleating, the smocking, is often on the chest panels and the cuffs. Mm. Uh, so cuffs and cuffs and collars kind of vary. Both of them have relatively wide collars that he talks about. But actually, what's very interesting about this is that there are connections between Massingham's collection and another collection that's in Gloucestershire. And that collection quite possibly inspired his own. And in that collection, I'm pretty sure there's a smock that, that purports to be that, that of Shepherd Wiggins. Um, and there are also photographs of Shepherd Wiggins. And in the photographs of Shepherd Wiggins, he's shown wearing a different type of smock, a shirt smock. Mm. And a shirt smock is one that's buttoned right the way down the front. So basically it's like a long shirt that hangs down as low as your knees. So it's covering quite a lot of your clothing, protecting the clothing, protecting what's underneath. Um, but if he was a shirt smock wearer, uh, why, are, why are the two smocks that could be his that are in our collections 
why are they both those reversible ones with just a very short uh, neck collar? Um, and also, why do they both have at least a bit of that smocking, that sort of pleating, that, that stitching, uh, whereas his reputedly had none? This sort of rings rather strange to me and suggests that maybe we have someone else's smock, maybe alongside the ferreters, but you know, <laughs> perhaps it's someone else's smock altogether. Oh, okay. Uh, is, it, is, it, is it common for these kind of, I don't know, did it get muddled up in transit? Is, is that something that could have happened? I, I think that's entirely possible, but mm. I think what, what, what perhaps is going on is that in some senses it doesn't really matter which smock it is. Um, because to Massingham and other collectors of that interwar period when he was gathering his stuff for his his, his country relics book, um, in that kind of period, and even in the late 19th century, it's more the idea of the smock that's important, and less so the smock itself. Mm. It's important to have a smock if you're a folk collector or as a collector of bygones, as Massingham was, and it's good to have stories about the kinds of people who wore smocks, stories about the Shepherd Wiggins of the world, who, uh, <laughs> interestingly, it's recorded in, in what in what Massing writes about him. He was he was 93 when he died in 1915, which is a fair old age to reach in, in wow. 1915. Wow. Uh, lots of stories about him as a, a successful shepherd. Um, and, and it's these stories that are hooked to a smock or to the idea of smocks as a sort of traditional form of clothing for shepherds mm. that's important. Um, and this sort of tallies with other smocks in other collections. So there's a, a smock in the University of Cambridge in the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, a smock that came to the, the museum there via the Folklore Society, via a famous folklorist called uh, E.S. Hartland. And Hartland collected this smock from someone who'd gathered it from a, th a third party who had received it from someone who'd, who'd, who'd worn it and owned it for 30 years or more, who was, a, who was also a shepherd. So this idea of a sort of long-standing traditional object that's been passed from generation to generation, saved and salvaged in some way that has this sort of romantic connection back to the pastoral uh, pastoral history of England to those sort of nice images of the green rolling hills that you, you, you referenced earlier mm. um, you know that's what's important here and actually you get that same sense of sort of the pastoral the imagery crops up in other contexts as well a, a more recent big public event than the Festival of Britain, that, that sort of post-war exhibition I was talking about that also took place in London was the 2012 Olympics. Mm. And if you remember the opening ceremony to the 2012 Olympics, there is a there's a there's a magnificent bit with 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 kind of Jerusalem and the, the, that that reference to green rolling uh, hills and and then the the dark satanic mills and uh, and that that sort of rise of the industrial revolution. But in that whole sequence, there are people wearing effectively smocks and carrying large replicas of shepherds' mm, crooks, referencing yes. that that rural past. Yes, and I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> and any one of them could be could be a sort of conduit, a metaphor for Shepherd Wiggins or for mm. any other sort of named shepherd of those kind of periods. And uh, it's it's just a sort of powerful image, but. Yeah. This idea that that maybe Shepherd's Wiggins smock is is one of those two, but it could be the one in the magnificently named Winchcombe Folk and Police Museum that I, <laughs> I was sort of alluding to earlier. This is a a museum in a in a village called Winchcombe that, uh, in Gloucestershire, where where Massingham actually collected many objects. He knew Winchcombe well because 
he injured himself whilst out walking, doing some research for one of his books, and ended up spending a long period of time in Winchcombe Cottage Hospital. And we think it's probably there that he was inspired to write uh, Country Relics. And this is because he probably heard of the, the Winchcombe Church Porch Museum, which changed its name laterally to the Winchcombe Folk and Police Museum. And this was the brainchild of a collector called Eleanor Adlard. And it was pretty much what it said on the tin. It was a, a small collection of stuff housed in a little room above the church porch, uh, oh, wow. rural bygones. Um, and she, she started this collection in, I think, the late 1920s. So again, that interwar period, uh, gathering sort of things that are that are perhaps thought to be uh, falling by the wayside, same kind of salvage ethnography motivation to the Merle's collections. Mm. Um, we don't know for certain that Massingham had heard of Eleanor Adlard's collection, but the fact that he started his collecting in Winchcombe round about the same time uh, seems to imply that perhaps he had. And it's probably in her collection that we would see another smock claiming to be uh, a smock belonging to, to Shepherd Wiggins. So was Shepherd Wiggins a particularly famous shepherd his smock is appearing in lots of different places i think he was well known in the local area and uh he was probably well known because he was uh, a man who'd lived for so long but in the the little bit of text that, that we have from massingham about him and in actual fact the text that massingham writes his country relics book is as much of it is cribbed from uh, the work of the people who collected for him. So uh, in the Gloucestershire area, he had a father in some team called the Greenings, um, and the Greenings uh, collected objects and corresponded with him, and they also wrote a book, uh, or wrote a sort of an unpublished manuscript about some of the things they collected and the, the rural stories they gathered alongside them. And that actually resides in the collections of the Winchcombe Folk, uh, the Winchcombe Folk and Police Museum, Mm. It's well worth visiting, by the way, because it, it combines uh, sort of rural bygones and folk objects and uh, a smock, possibly Shepherd Wiggins and other <laughs> objects from the Winchcombe local area with police uniforms of the world. So in terms of the sort of odd juxtapositions of material culture in museums, that's one of the greatest ever. Uh, so well worth a visit. But in their, in their archives, they house this manuscript, which has lots of information gathered by the, the Greenings on behalf of of uh, Massingham, um, and Massingham based a lot a, a lot of his book on on their text. But in that text, he describes how uh, Shepherd Wiggins had been the shepherd of the land round and about Hales Abbey, and on on the crowded walls of his daughter's home was a certificate for his having reared 173 lambs from 135 short-wooled ewes. 60 of them being uh, thieves. That doesn't mean they went around stealing <laughs> things. Uh, it means they were shearling ewes, uh, so what's commonly uh, described as gimmers, so they're, they're, they're sheep that are having their first lamb. Oh, okay. So this is, this is no mean feat back in the kind of period when he would have been active as a shepherd. The aim is, is, is often to get two lambs for each, each ewe, because... Yeah. Uh, ewes have have two teats, so you know you don't want them to have triplets because then there's there's one constantly struggling to get enough milk. Mm. But you don't want them to just have one because then you're you, you know you're wasting wasting milk. So this this notion that he had 173 lambs from 135 short will ewes back then, you know, it's quite a good ratio. It's sort of one and a, one and a half per 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 sheep. So he was clearly quite good at what he did. There's also a reference to. Uh, the smock that he wore being referred to by another old labourer, another elderly labourer in the neighbourhood as a fiddle bag, which is a, a wonderfully descriptive term, uh, <laughs> the, the notion of a fiddle bag uh, as a smock. Um, so 
this idea that people probably talked about Wiggins a lot in the area. He was he was a man who, uh, mm. you know, aged to to his nineties, which was a substantial age, uh, uh, and uh, you know his his shepherding is recorded uh, not only in the collections of the the Winchcombe originally folk porch, now Winchcombe Folk and Police Museum, but also in the writings of a significant ruralist writer of the period. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a character of renown, even if he himself isn't a man of letters, if that makes sense. So he's kind of the, the epitome of, you know, English, English rural life. He's a, a successful, a, he was a very successful shepherd. Mm. Yeah, he was good at what he did, uh, good at what he did. And, and you know, he, he did it in the time-honoured fashion, wearing a smock. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, 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 he's fulfilling everything we want of that sort of image of, of shepherds and, and shepherding of that period. Mm. Uh, and and in, in that sense, he, he, he encompasses one of the strengths and the problems of the kind of collection that I look after as a curator. You wander around the galleries of the Merle and, and look at the stored objects. I think both these smocks are actually in in our open access stores, so you can sort of see them, but sort of not. You know, they're they're hidden away amongst twenty or thirty other smocks, and and they're they become a, a sort of a generic, a part of a generic sort of representation of the the, the clothes that people wore. Mm. But they've also they've also done that thing that collections tend to do. Collections are sticky. You acquire one or two smocks and uh, from from Massingham in 1951, and then you get one or two others, maybe from Lavinia Smith, who's the other big founding collector in 1951. But then over the the next 60 and now actually 70 years since the museum was founded, it'll be our 70th anniversary uh, in 2021. There there have been countless smocks acquired. And they become sort of generically representative of what shepherds were like in the 19th century and, and and what other sort of agricultural labourers were like. But, of course, people wore other clothing as well. Yeah. And we have a few examples of that on display and elsewhere, a, a, a fustian jacket that belonged to a uh, belonged to a shepherd as well. I always Less associate commonly, um, yeah. the crook with shepherds rather than necessarily the smock. Yeah, and, cro- and crooks do a similar thing. Crooks are sort of romantic and, 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 and powerful images in other ways, uh, and obviously, again, we have we have objects that are linked to individual named shepherds, objects that uh, are connected to individual people and characters. But there are also lots and lots of other small, uh, uh, crooks that we know we know less about, and they they tell a slightly different story as well. I mean, we have um, the, there's a village in Sussex, um, which is which is known for a particular style of crook making where they often took old gun metal so the the barrels of of old guns it's good solid metal oh. and repurposed those into into the heads of shepherds crooks um and these were a type of crook that had a very particular curve to them so they're they're quite in uh, they're quite sort of sought after as as collector's items oh. and and they're also sort of powerful nostalgic images you know they, they they play that role in the 2012 olympics ceremony yeah. uh, you know they're, they're, they're sort of objects that museums like the merrill acquire i'll wager a guess and i can't remember because it's been many years since i've been but i'll wager the winchcombe folk and police museum has a shepherd's crook on display probably beside a mannequin <laughs> that's wearing uh, the the smock that probably mm. purports to be the smock of shepherd wiggins you know it's a sort of romantic um set of the accoutrements of the the shepherd you know the the yeah. the, the generic toolbox of the shepherd yeah. um, 
So in 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 some sorry in, the, in some correspondence about Shepherd Wiggins and with the uh, the Greenings, um, I, I read earlier today because I was just reminding myself of some of this history or some of this complex messed up history. I read that the Shepherd Wiggins' daughters also provided uh, shears, sets of shepherd shears or shears for clipping. Uh, fleeces to Massingham via the Greenings. So this, this sort of these Greening gentlemen acting as middlemen again, collecting for Massingham, acquiring objects that are representative of shepherds and shepherding. You know that are also connected in some way to to Shepherd Wiggins that that probably are also in the collections of the Merle, but may also mm. be confused with other shears <laughs> in there. And, um, yeah, oh, yeah. I wonder what um, his daughters would have thought because you know. It's you know for for those people these these are objects that are everyday way of life and the uh, the idea that someone would want to collect what to them looks normal must must have been a, maybe an odd experience. Yeah, I mean I think in that kind of period, uh, the people people probably wouldn't have been that surprised by collectors coming around and and asking for examples of things and in actual fact that the correspondence with the greenings indicates that that massingham actually found it quite difficult to track down a smock uh, an original genuine 19th century uh, shepherd smock and he was trying quite hard um, because he was very interested in shepherds and shepherding and, and in 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 the sort of life in the rolling hills of the cotswolds but but clearly his daughters had been approached by uh, the the greening several times you know that there are other go-to families in that even in that neck of the woods that same area um, there's a particular family of farmers called the sexties and the sexties uh, provide a whole range of objects to to Matthew's collections but their name also crops up in other contexts as well where they're selling objects to other antique dealers and collections uh, collectors so that they were onto a good thing and this may also explain another thing about the smock of course it may be that the 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 daughters of shepherd wiggins described the smock he writes it up in the book uh, in a particular way and then you know he comes to acquire a smock from them possibly at a later date maybe he's acquired it earlier and that smock is actually a different smock it doesn't necessarily stand to reason that shepherd wiggins only had one smock he maybe had the, <laughs> the button-up one for sunday best although uh, it, it is recorded somewhere that he he didn't go to church very often um, <laughs> but but, but he, you know he would have had, he would have had one, more than one certainly during his working life, um, mm. and sometimes that's the thing that 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 means that people keep these things. So, um, as I explained to begin with, when you have things like smocks, they're workwear. Believe it or not, it was, it was only very recently that the Museum of English Rural Life, a museum of sort of English countryside and farming life acquired the first pair of wellies uh, into its collections wow. you'd think we had hundreds of pairs of wellies being being we are the museum of, <laughs> of that kind of world but actual fact when wellies spring a leak what do you do with them you Stop don't think away. i'll give them to the museum you turf them out because <laughs> they're useless oh, wow. um, and the same is true of smocks so smocks are, are sort of working clothing so when they get worn out and and, and ripped and stained and and threadbare, you chuck them out. You don't keep them unless there's a significant personal connection. So this idea that these two daughters have effectively curated the memory memory of their father, um, who'd, who'd been dead for 24 years or so by the time uh, the Greenings came knocking and, and, and Massingham came knocking trying to find good stories for his book. Uh, you know, they, they've looked after certainly one smock and 
maybe a whole handful, maybe they've got a whole cupboard full. Maybe they're not even Shepherd, uh, Shepherd Wiggins smocks at all. I'm wondering Fair. if there's anything of my father's I need to start, like, <laughs> preserving now. <laughs> it was really interesting what you said earlier about uh, collections being sticky. Like, once you, once you get one smock, you, you then seem to acquire more of them and, and that that must and that that it must be a challenge because then when you're thinking about how visitors can differentiate the stories between them that that must be quite a challenge as a curator to think how do I make them not just turn off when they see another another smock yeah I mean I think that that comes back to the the real strength of your podcast which is mm. about those individual micro histories mm. um, it's about those those personal individual stories that are unique to one thing or or maybe unique to several things in the case of the smocks that may belong to Shepard Wiggins but you know it's it's about the, the power of narrative and what's interesting about many of the objects that we hold is that in some ways stories get thrust upon them to use a good shepherding term they get hefted so the narrative becomes told and told again and told with such force and such fervour in museum exhibitions, in whether it's blog posts or podcasts or wherever it might be, in a, in a museum trail, in a curator's talk, uh, in, a, in, a, in a workshop, that eventually that, that story gets stuck and it sticks to not just the one smock, if it's about smocks, but it sticks, sticks to lots of them. And that, that's sort of what's happening here. This story of Shepherd Wiggins is becoming heftied even to the ferreter's smock. And the ferreter, <laughs> he's got slightly lost in, in all of this. You know, the, mm. and it's a magnificent image, the, you know, the image of a, a man looking after ferrets and the ferrets getting in amongst the smock. And, you know, the classic image of the ferret up the, up the trouser leg. Well, imagine it sort of <laughs> rattling around in, a, in, a, in, in the fiddle bag of a smock, to use oh, that, that, that wonderful mm. term. But... But the, the smocks have become representative not of the ferreter, uh, mm. and not of the wagoners who wore them, but of the, the shepherds. We're both guilty of that, but also it's one of the great strengths and powers of, of objects in museums that we can we can at least bring some of that history to life, mm. even if we can't bring the story of the ferreter and the wagoner and the myriad other people who might have been wearing and working in smocks to life. But we can bring the story of someone like Shepard Wiggins and we can reiterate that with probably with any smock, to be honest. It's about mm. storytelling and the, yeah. and the sort of power of stories. And by hefting those stories onto a multitude of objects, um, we can even bring the, the, the objects to life that have no stories, that come in devoid of the speculations of H.J. Massingham or, or the mm. Greenings or uh, of, of anyone else who may have commented in the past. So it's very yeah. easy if a smock comes in to be like, oh, that must have belonged to a shepherd, rather than thinking there are other professions that probably wore a smock. Yeah, and actually there, there are some aspects of smocks that, that run counter to that. Um, so even though these aren't that heavily designed in terms of the the iconography on them and the and the sort of the stitching uh, and the patterns, some smocks have very detailed patterns. Some of them, uh, in fact, have shapes of wagon wheels on them um, that look purposefully representative of wagon wheels uh, and they also often have a type of button called a dorset button which again is sort of shaped like a wagon wheel and there's a temptation there and a temptation amongst smock enthusiasts uh, and and uh, sort of folk revivalist smock writers to think of those as representative of the trade 
of the wearer. So out of that romantic period of collecting, that early 20th century period when Massingham and others were collecting, when actually it was becoming also very popular to, to, to make smocks, um, it's becoming kind of uh, a revivalist craft industry. They've largely fallen out of use as workwear by the early 20th century. Um, but we have, for example, a large collection of smocks that came from the, uh, the Beer Regis Craft Association. And this was a bunch of people in Dorset who were interested in making smocks. Um, and lots of those revivalist uh, contexts... When, when did they make the smocks? Like so this is sort of, a, a, sort of, I think, early, uh, sort of Edwardian, late Edwardian, uh, sort of running through into the, the, the First World War period. Mm. Um, and, 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 that, and that idea of sort of smock making gathers pace throughout the 20th century and it becomes a sort of popular... Uh, craft practice and you can still go out and buy umpteen books about smocks and almost all of them will reiterate the notion that these symbols are somehow representative of the trade of the wearer but that's a romantic sort of notion that's been hefted onto them by enthusiastic crafting people and enthusiastic folklorists and, and collectors <laughs> it's actually probably not true so uh, whilst you're right that actually there were a whole host of different people and tradesmen and, 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 and work, workers and labourers who wore these things. And, and we could read into them the work of different uh, labourers. The tendency is to revert back to the, back to the shepherd um, and to ignore those symbols on them that might suggest otherwise, because that's actually a sort of romantic, uh, a romantic confusion. <laughs> um, and oddly enough, uh, it, it links back to someone else who wrote a lot about the countryside um, in a slightly earlier period, it links back, I think, most likely to the, the writings of Thomas Hardy. Oh, okay. Now, Thomas, Thomas Hardy writes about um, his concern for the uh, demise of what he calls the smock frock. Um, mm -hmm. That's another sort of common way to refer to smocks. He, he, he writes about that, I think, in the introduction to Far From the Madding Crowd. Um, mm. But he also wrote another essay uh, about symbolism in the countryside, and it was all to do with hiring fairs, um, and again to do with his concerns about a sort of tradition falling by the wayside. Um, but he wrote about symbols that people wore in their caps that were representative of their trade. So you're a, you're a, you're a agricultural labourer, a field labourer, you wear a particular symbol in your cap, you were someone who's uh, skilled at shepherding, you wear a particular symbol in your cap. Um, and this idea of the symbolism and his uh, concern for the smock rock, I think have been sort of bound together in some way. Mm. And therefore, images on smocks were read by people in the early 20th century to be representative of particular trades, which they almost certainly weren't. Um, and certainly by that stage, uh, by the late 19th century, most smocks are being produced in, in larger numbers and less likely to be handmade uh, by, the, by the, the, the families of the people who wore them. Um, mm. They're less likely to be homemade. They're often machine-stitched. Uh, they might be bought uh, uh, just as likely in the, in the local grocer's shop as they, they would be sort of stitched at home by, by a wife or a daughter. So... There's lots of sort of romantic fervour around these objects and, and lots of that needs unpicking, but they also need to be reconnected with these individual people's stories, mm. some of which won't be shepherds, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I, mean, I always love looking at clothes in museums, collections, because there's always something a bit more, bit more personal about them in terms of their history than, you know, I don't know, a, a, 
column or something that's <laughs> on display. Um, they're very human. They're very human objects. I think, and they they communicate a sense of the size and stature of the people who wore them. That you know, you can. I'm often surprised, for example, with the size of 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 working boots that seem quite small from the past. But people had smaller feet than me. I have ridiculously mm. large feet. <laughs> you know, or or the you know the the the, the impact of wear and work. Uh, you know, the repairs. The they mm. they have they have a very obvious biography to them mm. um, and those repairs and sort of stitched back sections or stains all tell an individual story not one we can necessarily unearth and 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 pull together or piece together but certainly stories that are powerful and hidden within them um, and i don't want to forget the the ferreter uh, we've obviously talked about shepherd higgins a lot but um a ferreter. I'm. I'm assuming it's someone who owns ferrets to go and kill other vermin. Is if I got guessed right? <laughs> yeah, I think. I think that's right. I think this is someone who's probably working in a particular estate, and he's probably helping to manage the rabbit population. And what's nice about the story about the ferreter is that it's said that the the smock is actually made. I think by his wife, um, and one of those two smocks, uh, one of those two smocks that we, we began with mm. has the name May, M-A-Y, stitched into, uh, I think, into one of the cuffs um, in red stitching. Um, mm. So it's, it's also said that his wife wove the fabric for the smock. Uh, so if that's true, then, you know, that's a, that's an object that's been entirely made at home and runs completely counter to what I was saying about those late 19th century smocks tending to be ones picked up at the, the grocer's shop. And it, um, yeah, and it really personalises it as, as well, if it's yeah. made by um, And that, the, the one that's thought to have been made by the ferreter's wife is, is thought to be the one that's got those heart shapes and floral markings on it. Neither of which, of course, relate directly to ferrets, <laughs> but, but both of which could relate to uh, a, a, a slightly romantic motif, which is nice, even even if that's the fanciful <laughs> imaginings of a, a museum curator. Well, um, thank you so much for exploring the potential stories behind these two smocks. Uh, it's been I, I, I never knew that you could get so much history from some smocks. I'm I'm really, <laughs> I'm really amazed. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs>